Well, this morning, I'm super excited to, to move from 1 Corinthians 12 to 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and, uh, and I thought it was really timely. I was talking to my wife uh, about this, that, uh, that uh, great, two virtues that I'm not very good at, patience and kindness. And, and right on the precipice of this, I'm, gonna, I'm about to get in the car and drive to Kansas City to go be around all of my family where I grew up. So patience and kindness, not very good at, and then going to visit my family. I thought, wow, this is a timely message just for me. So if you get anything out of that, that's just an extra bonus. Um, But this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to see this just chapter on love that's oftentimes referred to as a poem. Um, I I've been asked to, to, to give a message on 1 Corinthians 13 more than any other passage in the Bible for weddings, okay, for weddings, right? And it's a popular wedding message. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. It's a great passage, and, and, and uh, you know, maybe you were thinking, well, that's the passage I want at my wedding, and I don't want to crush anybody's hopes and dreams. But this one thing I want us to understand that Paul was not giving a softball to pastors to be able to preach when they officiate a wedding, to be able to talk about romantic love and marital love. No, we have to understand the first context of this chapter about love is to a church that is having problems within, and even that Paul, the apostle, is having problems with personally. You see, this chapter is an instruction manual to a church that Paul is asking to enter the workshop of love towards one another. Okay, so understand this. This chapter is an instruction manual for us as the church, first and foremost. Even a church that's in trouble, or, or and when I think about some of you, I think about this, a church... A church that has tender shoots, right? I mean, spring, has spring officially ended? Has it ended? It feels like summer now, okay? It feels like summer. It was warm enough. Um, I don't know actually what it is, right? So I'm, I was hoping Suzanne would tell me because I feel like Suzanne knows. Spring has not ended. It's not, okay, she doesn't know. All right. What? The 21st of June. Well, it feels like summer already, um, and as I look around, I see that most things are green. And I, I, I looked at a lilac bush at my house, and all the flowers were gone on it. Like the flowers had come, and the flowers had gone. Maybe I did something wrong. But that told me it's no longer spring. It's now summer, right? We've moved on. When I think about this church, I think about that first growth, right? I mean, you, you guys in your restart as a church are five years old, and some of this growth is just so tender. And when I talk about the growth, I mean, I mean the culture of love. What does it look like to relate to each other as, as people who are broken and Jesus is making whole by his grace? How do we get along with each other? When I think about that growth, when I think about this community, I love it. But the word tender comes to mind. Tender. That you wouldn't want to mistreat it right? 
that you wouldn't want to abuse it, that early spring growth, right? You, you don't want to pick it and start pruning it right away. It's that early growth. And I think this is a timely message for us. I was just talking with a group this week from our church, and I said, when it comes to our church culture, we want to grow in love. We as leaders, we as pastors, we don't think we've arrived, but we want to be invested in cultivating that tender growth. And a part of that tender growth is love for one another. I, I, um, I went to Moody Bible Institute. That was founded by D.L. Moody. So, so he was preaching in the late 19th century. And, and he had an experience. He had a thriving church in Chicago. And he asked someone to come and speak, an itinerant evangelist. And his name was Henry Morehouse. Morehouse came and spoke for a week at the church that D.L. Moody was a pastor. And there is the pastor of this church sitting and listening to this itinerant speaker for one week. And, and Henry Morehouse got up every evening. And he opened up to one verse. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he spoke about love every night. He started from this one verse. The last night he, he came up and he said, I, I've thought of a better, I've been thinking all day of a better text that explains God's love and I cannot and so he opened up to that verse, but the entire week, really what he had done, he had taken John 3.16 and he launched all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And he had expounded the love of God. Because there was a big question then, just like there's a big question now, is the God of the Old Testament, is he like angry? You know, is he just? He's righteous? And, and uh, you know, he, he's got anger towards our sin. And then in the New Testament, he's actually love. And there's this discontinuity. And Henry Morehouse showed Moody and his entire church, no, every night from Genesis to Revelation, he called people to God's love. That was new for Pastor Moody. You see, he called people to turn and repent from their sin, to turn back to God but he never used, he never taught, he never preached God's love towards sinners. Yeah, avoid judgment, but experience God's love, be changed by it? That was new for Moody. He was challenged that week, and, and he says this, Morehouse really challenged Moody, you need to understand God's love, and you need to preach more scriptural messages. And so Moody took up, this is a turning point in his life and ministry. He took up that challenge, and I'm going to quote him. He says, I took up that word love, this is Moody, and I do not know how many weeks I spent in studying the passage in which it occurs till at last I could not help loving people. I had been feeding on love so long that I was anxious to do everybody good I came in contact with. I got full of it. It ran out of my fingers. You 
take up the subject of love in the Bible. You will get so full of it that all you have got to do is open your lips and a flood of the love of God flows out upon the meeting. There is, and this is worth remembering, there is no use trying to do church work without love. A doctor, a lawyer may do good work without love, but God's work cannot be done without love. 1 John 3.16 tells us this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And what's the implication of it? That we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. A sacrificial love. You need to know what you're willing to give up. And 1 John 3.16 says, I've seen and experienced God's love in Jesus, and that means that I'm going to turn around And I know what I'm willing to give up for the good of my brothers and sisters. You see, this is a workshop of God's love in the church. And so if there's one thing I want you to take away from this series, which we'll be in for the next six weeks, the next six weeks, on love defined, we live in a culture that is in love with love, but it is unable doesn't have the grounding, doesn't have, quite honestly, the theology to be able to define what is love, a a good, eternal love that fits within our world and how it was created. Love remains rather undefined. We We put expectations on what love is, right? Our culture does. And they change. They change often. There are new things added to to what being a loving person is every year, and it's changing rapidly. I want to let you know that, that the love of 1 Corinthians 13 is unchanging. And and not just unchanging from, from when Paul spoke it, I'm talking about unchanging since God created our world. Since God promised Adam and Eve that he would send the one who would bring them back to God. That kind of a love. Paul's going to go into that love and he wants to get the love of God into the community of God. Now there's a problem and it's a problem that we have in our church and that churches in general have. And it's, it's this. It's this, that we come together as a community void of love. That people are interested in spiritual experiences, they're interested in personal growth, but they don't care about their church family. It just, it isn't a value to invest, to commit to, to devote yourself to another's good, and that's how we're going to define love right here, and, and you'll see it fleshed out more over the next six weeks, but, but what is love in 1 Corinthians 13? It's this, to commit to the good of another, to care for another. That's what love is right here. Now, right at the beginning of of chapter 13, we get the negative example, and you see the transition that Roger shared, all these different gifts, and I'm going to use use one word, um, manifestations of the Spirit. 
whether it's encouragement, maybe somebody built you up through their teaching or, or preaching or praying for you or listening to you or, or discipling you, meeting with you one-on-one or meeting with you in a Bible study, meeting with you in your community group. That's people using their spiritual giftedness, but there is a key to using your spiritual giftedness that helps the church grow. And the church will not grow the way that God wants it to if it's void of love. Here's the negative example. Look at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love. Right? Here's the have not, but have not two pots together. Whoa. Imagine the noise that that would make. I thought about doing that this morning, and then I thought, oh my goodness, I would irritate people so badly, banging some pots and pans. I'm just going to tell them about it, right? Banging pots and pans together while I talk to you. How annoying would that be? And not even just for a moment. What if I continued to do that while I spoke? I could make some of the most truthful statements. I could speak some of the most powerful biblical truth. But you really wouldn't like it. It really wouldn't build you up. That's what Paul's saying right here. Verse 2, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, I mean, those are really good things. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, generosity, And if I deliver up my body to be burned, the greatest sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, but have not love, I gain nothing. Absolutely nothing. What's he saying? Five things that he's saying. Without love. Without love, even heavenly languages sound annoying. They're just annoying. They're bothersome. It's like static on the radio. Without love, knowing everything helps no one. Without love, knowing everything helps no one. Third, risk-taking faith is worthless. Those people that are willing to step out and do things, maybe perhaps without knowing some details of of the finances or the volunteers that will make it happen, that risk-taking faith, it's worthless if it's not backed by love. Giving all one's money to the poor is, in fact, unprofitable. It's unprofitable without love. And lastly, the ultimate sacrifice of one's life is pointless. Oh my goodness. Have you ever heard someone say someone giving, sacrificing themselves for another ultimate sacrifice being worthless? No, I mean, we, we just had Memorial Day, right? This is a bold statement by Paul. Well, without love, it is worthless. It is. Some of you, you can be full of talent. You can be gifted. You can have so many spiritual strengths and gifts, and it will mean 
nada without love. If you lack one thing, you can have powerful experiences worshiping together. You can have timely words at a crucial moment for another soul's life in this church. You can have faith to see God's hand bring about revival in this community. You can have the most generous heart. You can give everything away. You can even die for your faith, and it will mean nothing to God. Nothing. No gain, none, unless, but one thing, that you do it in the same kind of love that God sends his son, the same kind of love, a care, a commitment to someone's good. It will be no gain, none, unless you love, right? I, I, What's the, what's the title of this message? Everything minus one thing equals nothing. Everything minus one thing equals nothing. George Sweeting, he was, he was a, a famous pastor also. He was a president at Moody. He says this, gifts minus love equal zero. Gifts minus love equals zero. D.A. Carson calls this the divine mathematics you leave out love, you've got nothing, absolutely nothing, no matter how talented, no matter how gifted. I'm putting it this way. Number one, the greatest spiritual giftings minus love equal nothing. It's meaningless in God's economy, in God's church. Number two, you do not gain unless you gain in love. Right, the, the first way I put it is kind of depressing. Like, oh man, those things I've done that I did not do out of love meant nothing to God? Pretty negative. But number two, you do not gain unless you gain in love. That puts a point on it. Right, numbers are so easy for us to track. How about the qualitative love? Commitment and care, it's harder to see, but that's where we need to make headway. That's where Paul says we need to gain and grow. It's in love. There are so many ways that the Spirit works through you, empowers you to serve and care, do ministry, but all of that needs to happen on the Spirit, on the path of the Spirit leading us in love. Okay, so think of all the different things that you could do. It all needs to happen on this one path that the Spirit leads us on, and the Spirit is going to lead us in love and no other motivation. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest American theologian that we've seen, says this. He says, God delights in little things. God delights in little things when they spring from sincere love to himself, to God. A cup of cold water given to a disciple in sincere love is worth more in God's sight than all one's goods given to feed the poor. Yea, than the wealth of a kingdom given away or a body offered up in the flames without love. His point, he hits it on the head. Even the littlest things that we do with the same motive of God sending his son Jesus matters so much to God. A lot of times we look at the big things, 
the really big things, and they, they get our attention. He's saying, no, no, it's the things that come from the truest, the most sincere love. That is what God enjoys. That's what he loves. What does, it, what does this mean for us? It means I can study the Bible. You can pray for people. You can visit the hospital. You can connect with your neighbors, but it will all be a waste in God's eyes if you don't do it out of love. And you might be saying, well, well, what other reason would I do all those good things? And that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked. Let me give you four to stimulate your thinking. Only four. There's more. There's way more. I only prepared four for you. Okay, so you ready? What are the reasons other than love that we would do all these good things? Have our neighbor over the invitations, investing in other people, praying for them. I mean, studying the Bible. Well, the first is this, self-promotion or self-recognition. Looking good. I want to look good. That's why I did this. That's not love. It falls way short of love. Looking good. That's not love. It's essentially, it's essentially makeup, right? Self-promotion, self-recognition. I want to look good. There isn't substance there. The second is this, manipulation. Manipulation. You love people somewhat like the Godfather does, right? You know? Like, I'm doing you this favor, so you're going to do me this favor. We know that kind of love, love, false love. No, it's not love. It's actually manipulation, right? I want something, so I'm going to do this. That's not love. Falls way short of the Father's love in sending the Son or the Son's love for His church in sending the Spirit. Way short not manipulation. Thirdly, a duty to the right thing. A duty to the right thing. I think of, um, I think of, you know, a Boy Scout. I know the right thing to do. I should do it, you know. But maybe, you know, maybe I don't really care about this person. Or maybe the better example, if you if you read Christianity Today, uh, they just published an article this week on short-term mission trips, just in time for summer short-term mission trips, which I'm a fan of. I'm, I'm a fan of, and I encourage you to go on and. Uh, we want to see happen here, but interesting article in the dynamic of recruiting adults and students to travel somewhere else in the U.S., outside the U.S., to go serve, and we know it's a good thing and that we should do it, but the dynamic of the article was written from the people who are receiving that service, and this was the insight into the article, that it's a good try, and we understand why we would do that, but a lot of times you're recruiting students and adults that don't give a rip about the people that they're going to. And when they get there, it's pretty obvious. They're not interested in them. They don't want to get to know them. They don't really want to know what their true needs are. And they don't think that the people that they're serving have anything to teach them in return. It's a scathing article. It made me a little cynical at first, but then if you read all the way to the end of it, there's some good, good applications about changing those things. Let's change those things as we go on a short-term mission trip. Let's go with humility. We have something to learn, right? It's the right thing. 
But what was lacking in those short-term mission trips? What was it? It was a true love or care for the people that they were going to. It was clearly absent, and it was so clear to the people who were on the receiving end of this service. It's the right thing to do, but absent of love, it's actually pretty ugly. There's a fourth reason, a fourth reason that we might do these good things, and one is to show up our opponents. To show up our opponents. You see, if I serve others, if I do these things, if I, if I say the encouraging thing or pray for them, it's, it's going to show that I'm better than this other group of people. A lot of times it's politically motivated. We're trying to prove a point by what we're doing. And it's not ushered forth from a sincere love. This is what Paul would say to all those false reasons to do good things to other people. He would say, there is a better way. There is a better way. This way is so important, we are going to take the next six weeks to unfold it. I'm only going to get to two. Kindness, patience. Kindness and patience. But first we need to see that location of love, right? I need you to remember this. Where is this love? This love is applied to the church family, to the family of God. But I hope, and I hope you have the same desire, that as God changes and shapes our love for each other, that marriages will change. There will be a different substantial love in marriages. That friendships will change. As we practice this love by God's Spirit through His Word, that our love is going to change, even in our friendships outside of the church. The way we treat our neighbor, the way we treat the people under our roof, the way we love them will change too, as first and foremost, our love for the family of God changes. And then the character of love what, what love does. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I don't like get really geeked out about orig- original languages or, or Greek very often, but there's one thing you need to know for the next six weeks, all right? If you remember this the next six weeks, so six weeks from now, uh, July 23rd, last message, I want you to come up to me and say, Gabe, I remember what you said <laughs> on June 5th, all right? You remember this. All right, so an adjective, grammatically, is a word that modifies a noun, right? It modifies another word. That's an adjective, right? Um, pretty, beautiful, bright, all adjectives. And if you read 1 Corinthians 13, in most English Bibles, all of these 15 descriptions we'll get to are adjectives. They're adjectives. Patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. But if you look in the Greek, none of them are adjectives. They are all verbs. And I agree with the English translators. They're doing us a favor. But I think it's important as we do this deep dive into the 15 descriptions that you understand it is not what does love look like, it is what does love do. 
Love does. All these words, patience, kindness, they're all verbs. They're all action verbs. Love is an action, and these verbs are going to shape the action for us. They're not adjectives. They're verbs. Love does. Love does. The first thing love does, love does patience. Patience. Love is patience. What is patience? It is long-suffering. It's forbearance. That means bearing with somebody for a long time. It means continuing even when it's difficult. Patient love stays. It sticks with a person. And here's what we need to see first and foremost is that God's love is patient. And the Bible is explicit about it. Paul tells us that in Romans. It's a warning on the one hand. Hey, just because God's patient with you and doesn't send judgment right away doesn't mean that you should just keep ignoring him. God's patience is actually meant to to call you, to invite you back to the family of God. Don't keep running because you understand that the character of God's love is to stick with you when you're at your worst. God's love is patient. And then then Romans 3.25 says that, that God's loving patience is justified when he sends his son to bear our sins, to turn away his judgment. That's why his love can be patient, because he eventually sends his son to bear our sins. That's how he can practice forbearance towards people like me who are are sinners, ignore and rebel against God. But this is what we need to take away, that God did not give up on us in our rebellion, so we shouldn't let our love for the family of God give up either. His love is patient for us. We see that in the gospel, which means the culture of love within the church is, I don't give up on you. I know how God's treated you, and I know how he's treated me as I look at Jesus on the cross. And so I need to treat you in the same way, patient, sticking with you. Now, now here's what we like to do. Here's what I like to do, and maybe, maybe you do too. I, I don't know. I just know me. You know you, all right? But you think about your heart and your mind. I like to write people off pretty easily, right? Um, I like to write people off. I like to dismiss them, reject them for one reason or another. Here, here are maybe some reasons that you, maybe me, maybe this is me, I like to write someone off because I don't think the same way they do politically. I can easily dismiss someone because their personality does not jive with me. I, I, can, I can even stop any commitment to someone's good because their preferences in life are different than mine. Here's what we need to see. The character of God's love shapes our church community. It's not the same politics, a uniformity of thought. It is not the same personality types, 
preferences, ages, stages of life. It's none of those things. We stick with and don't dismiss because our love is patient. It's a stick with kind of love. 2 Timothy 2, 24 even says this about a qualification for spiritual leadership in the church. It says that one of the characteristics is this. It's patiently enduring evil. Patiently enduring evil. Alex Strzok, he, he, um, he, he kind of puts some flesh on. What does that mean, patiently enduring evil as a spiritual leader? He says this. It's impossible to lead people without eventually being attacked. And people will assail their leader's character, criticize their decisions, speak evil behind their backs, and take advantage of their love. If you are a spiritual leader in someone's life, this is what Paul says to Timothy, or what you can expect. And how should we respond? Be patient. Stick with those people that bite your hand. Don't dismiss them. Don't reject them. You stick with them. That's why that characteristic is so important to Paul. Do you want to invest in other people? Then your love must do patience. It must do patience. You know, people are not like, uh, they're not like a remote control car, you know? If I influence or if I lead, that means I get the remote. No, not at all. People are like, my son would love this, a Rubik's Cube. I can just turn them this way and that way and make them perfect. And No, that's not what investing in other people looks like. It's long, it's continual, and there are steps back. In fact, I want to say praise and, and, and just recognize the women in our church who have loved particular people that, that are running. <laughs> I mean, like, it, it, you know, if, if this is the path of the Spirit we were talking about, that, the other direction. And you continue to invest in them and care for them. When the train is clearly off the track, you still reach out to them and care for them. They are not dismissed. They're not written off. They are pursued with persistence and patience. And that amazes me. And that is what our love must do as an entire church. You know, um, Roger did a great job about talking about the, the uh, different aspects of what's going on in the Corinthian church, but you need to understand Paul is writing 1 Corinthians while under attack by a good portion of the Corinthians. While he's being criticized, slandered, right? It, it's no Philippians love letter. <laughs> but the fact that he controls his tongue, that he sticks with them, that he doesn't treat the Corinthians with the same kind of contempt that he's receiving. He doesn't go silent on them he writes one of his longest letters. He gives them more attention. What's he doing? Paul's love is exercising patience towards the Corinthians, even while he tells them that love, love is patient. It's patient. I think about, I think about just how we treat kids, right? Whether it was 
whether it was, uh, you know, Julie this morning doing hospitality and then also asking my kids memory verses and sharing memory verses with them, right? That kind of patience. And, and I'll just tell you what, you know, kids don't perform. You know, they, they never do. <laughs> and, and that's fine, right? You invest in them and, and maybe you don't see what you want to see developed the way or you don't hear the words you want to hear, right? But you stick with them because they're your church's kids, you help them. You invest in them because you want to see that soul continue in Christ. No matter if they're doing or living the way that you want them to. It's that kind of love, that patience that we have for kids. I wish this, though. I wish that that same kind of love that we have for kids, that we'd have for each other. We stick with each other even when we're not getting exactly what we want. We're not hearing the right words. I think it's important to to think about this. Justice says uh, your words, your actions, they were ugly, they were rotten, they were wrong. You shouldn't have said them. That's what justice says. But love says I'm going to help and stick with that person who said those rotten, ugly words. They were wrong. And I'm going to stick with them. I'm going to keep investing in them. Okay, wonder with me. Two applications of this. Patience in the church. Wonder with me about this. What if we never thought in the category of church shopping again? What if we never looked out at the landscape of churches and said, what can they offer me? And instead we thought, what community, what body of Christ can I invest my life patiently? Can I commit to? Can I be in for the long haul? Because, because on the flip side of this, th- think about this. How, how can the community of believers united by faith, how much can that community grow if they had this sense of my community group leader, my discipleship leader, my pastors, my, my deacons, I, I know that they're going to patiently be here invested in me. I trust that. How much do people flourish when they see patience in their leaders, in the people that invest in them? They flourish, they grow. And so wonder with me if we just threw out this whole mentality of what does this church have to offer and we thought more of what church do do I want to invest myself, being patient with this group, but committed to them. Now, there, there are reasons to leave a church. Don't get me wrong. But what if we threw out that category? Who do I want to stick with through the hard years? Patience. Well, the second is this. Love does kindness. Love is kind. Love does kindness. Kindness if patience is this passive dimension of love, patience is the, it's the 
Um, outgoing, it's the active dimension of love. Kindness is an eagerness to do good, to serve, to listen, to encourage, to pray for, or show compassion. Think about, think about how Jesus extended kindness to people that the rest of society wrote off. Like he actively went out of his way to do these things. You know, he wasn't just patient with these people. He went out of his way to be kind to them. He gave children time in a culture that wrote off kids as unimportant. Secondly, he touched the leper. Lepers who were ceremonially unclean. And, and as far as society went, you didn't have any contact with them. And he touched, he touched the lepers before he healed them. He held public company with sexually immoral people. I say this intentionally because this comes up in Corinthians. Paul makes a big point. I don't want you to tolerate sexual immorality in the family of God. You need to correct, you need to rebuke, you need to exhort. But he makes a point. I'm not talking about in your community, in your neighborhood, in Corinth. I'm talking about within the family of God. But I fully expect that your neighbors do not have the same kind of sexual morals that you do or the people that you work with or the people on your softball team. They don't, they won't. And Jesus held public company with people who were ostracized for their sexual immorality. Jesus ate with hated tax collectors. He ate meals with them. That was a public statement. Jesus extended kindness. And, and here's what I'd like to do, if we can do this. I'd like to throw myself in this category. As far as, as, far as God and his holiness and justice and righteousness is concerned, I'm on this list. I am a spiritual leper. I should not be associated with And yet he does. That Jesus sends his spirit by his grace, that's a kindness that I receive. And so I need to extend that kindness to the people in the family of God. Thomas Cranmer, he was the archbishop of Canterbury, part of the Church of England. And, and it was said of him that, that to, um, to do him any wrong was to beget a kindness. He was so, so shaped, so motivated by, I want to do kindness, that if, if you went out of your way to do some kind of wrong or to insult him, that he would, he, it was like his invitation to say, I need to, I need to go be kind to Gabe because he just insulted me, right? Like, think about that mentality. You know, if, we thought, uh, if we thought about kindness that way, right? When someone says something to me, when someone does something to me, and, and it's rude, or they're irritated with me, I, that's when I need to go the extra mile. That's when I know God wants me to be kind, just like Thomas Cranmer. I know nothing else about Thomas Cranmer. I, I know he's a historical figure. I know nothing else. But just this one thing has made such an impression, I'm not going to forget him, right? To do him any wrong was to beget a kindness, 
I know some of you have, uh, on, on cold, snowy days, you've thought, who in my church needs their sidewalk shoveled? Who needs their driveway shoveled? You've gone and done it. Christmas time, you decided to go caroling, and you picked up that list of people in or outside of your community group or, or at your church that you wanted to go caroling to. You have served week in and week out in kids' ministry, loving on my kids and other kids so that they know that the church is a place where I see and feel Jesus' love. You've done that. It's awesome. Here, here's where I want us to continue this line of thinking. Okay, so there's one way of thinking, which is this. We all want to belong, and we want to avoid uncomfortable situations, right? We want to belong. We want to avoid uncomfortable situations. And sometimes that hinders our kindness. Because kindness is not doing normal. It's not doing the average. It's not doing the ordinary. It's saying, I am going to go do something that shows someone I'm committed as their brother or sister in Christ to their good. That's uncomfortable for us as independent Americans. <laughs> when people begin reaching out to us like that, and, and we're afraid, how will they respond? Or what if they reject that? Or, and I'm saying, be okay with that. Be okay with not fitting in with normal when it comes to kindness. We're pretty rude as Americans. I can, be, I can be rude. I can. I want us to be challenged with kindness that says, I'm okay being uncomfortable by sharing that kind word, by doing that kind action. Even if it's not normal, even if people don't do that, I want to give that kindness. I'm okay with it. And so here's my question. How can you give kindness to your brothers and sisters? And what good are you going to give away or work for in the family of God? What is it for you? I want to close with um, an, another powerful person in the history of our faith, uh, Charles Simeon, who I think is mostly known for his preaching. He's got this massive set of commentaries, ginormous, right? All, all the messages that, that he wrote that are um, still used today by people, and, and I quote him sometimes, Charles Simeon, great pastor. But here's the thing about him, most people don't know, is that he became a pastor pretty young um, at, at a church that had lost two pastors within the, lost, the last year, which means that, man, there were some issues. Like, it was a First Corinthians church, right? Like, nobody wanted to be their pastor, and they were just moving along. And, uh, and you'll find out why. Uh, Charles Simeon, was assigned to this particular church rather young, and they actually wanted somebody else, right? So I think it was like the superintendent um, who was lecturing and teaching more and more in the church, and like, we want that guy, not Charles Simeon. And, and who, did, who did the Church of England send to this church? Simeon, right? So he's showing up to a church that doesn't want him. So much so even that when people gave and gave certain amounts, they literally had pews reserved for them. And, and so when Charles Simeon came to town to try to push him out and say, we don't want you, people came to church on Sunday morning, they locked up their pew, and they left. 
so that nobody coming in could sit in their pew, even though they weren't there. I have a feeling the same dynamic works in, in some churches, right? You know, you've got your reserved pew and everything, you know? Like, by the way, Heather and I, like, we sit here a lot, and, and maybe we shouldn't, but if you ever want to join us, join us on the front row. It's great. There's lots of, lots of real estate up here in the front row. Well, that was funnier than I thought. Okay, so, um, so they locked the pews so that not only were they not going to be there to show they didn't support Simeon, but they actually locked the pews so that nobody else could. And do you know what Charles Simeon did? He didn't retaliate. He didn't fight. He patiently stuck with the church. He showed them kindness, not revenge. It took years. It took four years for some people to unlock their pew. The church service looked like empty pews in packed, packed walkways. That's what the church was like. No one would have faulted Charles Simeon for leaving, right? I mean, what kind of, what kind of a shame, what kind of retaliation but he didn't seek revenge. He patiently loved, served at that church for 35 years, had a profound impact. But it did not start out easy. Being patient, being kind were tested. They were tested. Your love, because Jesus loves you, your love is packed. It is action-packed for patience and kindness. Jesus, thank you that you have loved us, that you've not written us off, but that you've cared for us. Lord, even when we turned our back on you for so long, your love is patient. Even today when we resist and say, I am, I am not going to give in to Jesus in, in this part of my life or that, and you have still been so patient to not dismiss us. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the same type of love for our brothers and sisters, that we would be gracious to each other. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.